In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness, any compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for braving the cold this morning and this incessant snow. Are you done with it? Yeah, too bad. Um, I got nothing to do with that. It just seems like we're getting hammered every Sunday morning here. Um, and I've run out of trips to take to get me away from it. So I'm in it with you for the next uh, 12 weeks. So that's my prediction. Yeah. So hopefully I'm wrong. Prophecy's not one of my gifts. Uh, as a kid, I would uh, spend one week every summer at church camp. And I don't know if you ever had the privilege of going to church camp as a kid, um, but for me it was the highlight of my summer. And my mom and dad would pile us all into the car and we would drive 90 minutes away to this 55-acre kind of rustic church camp uh, and we would spend, you know, I would spend six days there uh, and just loved it. 30 adult volunteers would do their best to corral 150 homesick, sweaty, hormonal elementary age kids for six days. Uh, I think it was, in some part, as I learned in later years, it was their penance. Um, You know, that's what they did. But it was great for us as kids. Everything during those weeks of camp for elementary age kids was organized into teams. We were put on a team on Sunday, and we did team activities all through the week, and there were points attached to everything, everything, everything. How you made your bed in the morning, to how you lined up to go in and get meals, to how you cleaned up the tables, to team activities in the afternoons, even down to memorizing scripture. There were points attached, all these points for your team accrued throughout the week, and at the end of the week, the team with the most points won. For the life of me, I tried this week to remember. I can't remember what we won at the end of the week, but somehow it seemed to matter when I was in grade school and I went to camp. And one year, I do remember that in fifth grade, my team won. 
I don't remember what we won, um, but it mattered at that point. When I was in one of those weeks of camp was when I was introduced to this passage from Philippians. It was given as a bonus passage to memorize, and it had an enormous amount of points attached to it because it was a lengthy passage for an elementary age kid to memorize. So I took it on, and I conquered it. I memorized this entire passage. I got a lot of points for my team, and if my memory serves me correctly, my motivation for doing it had something to do with a cute girl that was on our team. Just a note, only at church camp, uh, Christian church camp, can a nerdy boy convince himself that memorizing scripture will somehow win the heart of a cute girl. Go figure. Ever since that day, I have loved this passage of scripture. It's just stuck with me, you know, for all these years. I love it now because it is one of the simplest, clearest passages of scripture that talks about how we're supposed to relate to each other, not just in the life of a church, but just on a simple human interaction level. How do we treat each other? What's that supposed to look like? Paul writes really clearly here. He starts off this passage with a series of rhetorical questions. And he says, really think about it. Have you been blessed in any way by the grace of God? Have you been shown any comfort or compassion by other believers? Now, if we think about those questions for any length of time, the obvious answer would be, yeah, we have. Every one of us could tell our own story about the way that God's grace has changed us, shaped us, remade us. How not only our future, but our present circumstances are dramatically different, better, because of God's grace in our lives. We're better people because of His grace. We could also tell the story of how other believers have come alongside us in difficult times. Sometimes with food, sometimes with the basic necessities of life, clothing, shelter. They've helped us. Sometimes it's just simply to sit with us and be with us and listen to us pour our hearts out when we're in pain. I've been reminded profoundly in the last 48 hours about how much it mattered to me over the last year to have close friends who are believers who were walking with me as my mom uh, lost her battle with Alzheimer's and then as I've dealt with my own grief at her passing. That kind of tenderness, Paul says, that kind of compassion shown to you by God and other believers, it ought to bring about a radical change in our heart and in our behavior. We ought to become more loving people. We ought to become more unified, less selfish, less self-centered. It should have a practical and profound impact on our behavior. And as if to just Find a good example for this to drive the point home. Paul says, we ought to look at Jesus' example, what he did. 
And it looks, if you open up your Bible and you look at verses 6 through 11 in Philippians 2, it looks like poetry or prose. It's structured that way. And that's because it's believed that those verses actually came from a song that the early church used all the time. It was a contemporary Christian song of their day. And it contained this one simple truth. If you boiled it down to one sentence, it's this. If I want to be a real follower of Jesus, I need to think and act like he did. I need to have his mindset. And Paul goes on to list a few ways that we need to be like Jesus. First of all, and maybe the toughest of all, he says, I need to accept the fact that life isn't all about me. Whatever wealth, whatever abilities whatever power or position that I may have accumulated in this life, I need to remember that they're not just there for my benefit. It's not about me. It's not just for my advantage, my blessing. That I'm a part of a diverse family. And those things are there to bless my entire family. Acts 16 tells us about the start of this church in Philippi and tells us that it was in a diverse city And it reflected the diversity. In this church, we find several people that are mentioned in Acts 16. The first is Lydia. Lydia was a Jewish convert from Asia. And she was a very successful businesswoman, probably very wealthy. We also find in there the story of a demon-possessed fortune teller, probably a Greek woman, probably a slave who was being exploited. In the process of his teaching, Paul comes across her, confronts her, converts her. She's a part of the church. So you have two ends of the spectrum with a wealthy businesswoman and a slave girl. And then somewhere in the middle is this Roman jailer who was guarding Paul. Paul was arrested for talking about Jesus, thrown in jail. This jailer who's watching Paul ends up being converted, and he's a part of the church too. That's just three of the people who are in that church, all from very different backgrounds, all with a different social status in that little town. Their world from the outside was very stratified by class, by wealth, by social rank. They would have never hung out together. How would it be possible for them to set aside all of that, be part of one church and have unity? To guard against selfishness, to guard against jealousy, to guard against prejudice. And I love the fact that Paul says, when you think about all this, think about Jesus. Because if anybody had the right to play a trump card on social status or status at all, it was Jesus. Jesus, Paul says, was equal to God. He wasn't a junior partner. He wasn't in the Trinity. He wasn't an intern, an assistant, or a vice president to God. Jesus was equal to God the Father. When you read the Bible, you see very clear statements that spell that out. He was equal to God in every way, shape, and form. Take the Gospel of John, the very first chapter. When John is writing there, he says that Jesus was present and involved in the creation of the world. 
In fact, John goes so far to say that nothing was made apart from him. Everything was made in him and through him. Jesus ruled and reigned with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from the very beginning of time. So when we read in Isaiah 6 about the prophet Isaiah seeing angels bowing down before God and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They were worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit equally. And that may seem like a trivial point, but it's critical to understanding what Paul writes next. We need to have the right perspective when Paul says in verse 6 that being in very nature God, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In fact, if you read different translations of this, some translations will actually say he didn't consider it something to be grasped, something to be clutched, something to be held on to tightly. He loosened his grip on his rights and his privileges as an equal with God. He gave up the riches of heaven to come to earth as the son of a poor, blue-collar, working family. His focus wasn't on what he had, what he owned, his position, his power, his authority, his holiness, his perfection, his deity. Jesus used all of that not for his advantage when he came to earth, but for ours, to save us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and I don't think in my lifetime I will ever fathom those simple words, for though he was rich, I don't think I'll ever understand fully what that means, what he had in heaven, what he walked away from for me. For though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, So that through his poverty, we might become rich. So what do we do with all that we've been blessed with? Because we've been blessed. What do we do with our position, with our possessions? Do we use it to our advantage? Do we clutch it tightly? Hold on to it? Leverage it to our own advantage? It's a choice we can make. Paul says the better choice then, though, is to leverage it in a different way, to use it in a different way, to decide to serve others. And it is a decision that we have to face. It's really as simple as that. We can decide to serve others, or we can decide to wait to be served. In verse 4, Paul puts it really plainly. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. It's a curious verse, really, when you look at the original language, because the word interests is just a filler. It's like the way we use things. It can refer to a lot of stuff. It's an open-ended word. And really, if we read the verse like the original language intends it, we would write in the Bible just a fill-in-the-blank for that verse It would look more like this, what's going to come up on the screen behind me. This is how your Bible would read. Not looking to your own blank, but each of you to the blank 
of the others. And it would be okay to put any word in there that you wanted to as long as the same word was put in both blanks. So fill in the blank. Family. Health. Success. Reputation. Education. Joy. Finances. Any word, as long as you're looking out for the same thing for those around you as you are for yourself. So you don't just think and strategize and work towards those things in your own life. You pay attention to those same things in the lives of the people around us. Why? Not because they deserve it. Not because they've earned it. But because of the grace of Jesus in our lives. Because we didn't deserve that. So it begs the question. Who's in my life right now that I need to pay attention to? Look to their interests. Where do I need to hold my interests loosely? The same way Jesus did. And care for them as much as I care for my interests in that area. It's not a hypothetical question. It's one we have to consider seriously. Because of the command here in this passage. See, you and I are faced every single day with dozens of opportunities to serve others. And with each one of them, we're faced with a choice. Will I be a servant? Will I set aside a tiny little bit of my agenda, my time, and serve this person? Or will I ignore the opportunity to be like Jesus? We have tons of opportunities around here to do that kind of thing. To serve. I've seen the calendar that our Compassion Ministry has throughout the year and opportunities to serve with the Northern Illinois Food Bank, with Huff, with all kinds of opportunities. And those are phenomenal. You guys are great at doing that. I just did a review of last year. And as a church, we do phenomenal at those things. And I love your heart. Best as we can tell, about 50% of our church engaged in some kind of an outreach activity last year serving the poor and the needy outside of our church that's a staggering number and not normal for churches so i'm grateful that you're abnormal (laughs) and you can quote me on that but oftentimes this whole servanthood thing is a day-to-day thing it's a it's as simple as this you're in the line somewhere at a store could be Walgreens or Target. could be anywhere. And you realize that the person behind you has just a couple of items and they're in a hurry. Or it could be that they have more items than you and they're in a hurry. And you let them go first. That's servanthood. It could be that you're at a meal with people at work or in your home or with friends. And you're going to refill your tea or coffee or whatever it is you're drinking. And you realize they need something too. And you serve them. Or you realize they need something even if you don't. And you serve them. It could be that you're cleaning the snow off your car. When you leave your office or your place of work. Or when you leave church today. And you take a few extra minutes and clean the snow off of the car next to you. As a simple act of of kindness. Mine is parked. Right. 
what happens is when we do those random acts of kindness, of servanthood, it not only blesses another person, but it begins to change our heart and align our heart with the heart of God. One more thing Paul mentions in this passage. He says, we need to learn to be humble. And I am convinced that most of us don't really have a good, solid understanding of what humility is. And I'm convinced of that in part just by experiences with people. But think about it. I mean, we read a verse like this, one of those little verses in Scripture that we can pass over. We read a verse like this and we stumble on it. Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, why do we stumble on that verse? Who wrote that verse out of Numbers? Moses. <laughs> I love things like that because it was kind of a slow roll across the room. Some of you will get that later on this afternoon. You can just Facebook me and go, hey, I got it, okay? Yeah, so we read that and we go, well, wait a minute. Did, did like Moses slip that one in and God just didn't see it when he was writing it? How could Moses write... Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Did it like, at the moment he wrote that, did it go away? I mean, was he afraid of his wife reading that and going, really, Moses? Really? You know? Part of it is we just don't understand humility. Okay? I I was thinking about how to try to explain this today, and I just started laughing because I remembered a song. Any of you who are like over 30 may remember this song. Uh... It's a country song uh, from back when I was a kid. Uh, the words go like this. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be one heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Somebody asked me in first service if I wrote that. and I said, no. That was Darren. And I reflect, and I went, actually, it probably fits Gordon better than it does any of us. Uh, no, it's actually a song from 1980 by a guy named Mac Davis. And my wife dared me to sing it this morning, and I went, no, no, I would not inflict that on you guys. Um, I think it actually probably is really good at a honky-tonk bar is where that would, you know, the whole crowd singing it. I don't think I could get you guys into it. We have this twisted sense of what humility is, don't we? We just, I don't think we really fully grasp what humility is. A lot of the times we tend to equate humility with self-abasement. We have to really beat ourselves down in order to be humble. We make it kind of like if we have, if we meet somebody and they have a negative self-image, they're getting close to humility. They have a few more rungs down to go before they get there. But that's not humility. Every single one of us is a unique creation of God. Every single one of us has talents, gifts, abilities that God has given to us. In fact, in March, I'm going to do a three-part series on that. Um, We are all uniquely gifted and created by God. And being humble doesn't mean that we devalue our gifts and abilities. Being humble doesn't mean that we have to dislike ourselves. Or talk bad about ourselves. In fact, the best definition I've ever heard about humility was this. Humility is having an accurate assessment of our gifts and abilities. 
and accurate. We don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We don't think lower of ourselves than we ought. It's just an accurate assessment. And then we're not arrogant and boastful about it. It's just accurate. We don't feel the need to constantly talk about it. It's just who we are. We're confident. Think about this. Jesus said in Matthew, I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus wasn't prideful and arrogant. In all four Gospels, we learn that Jesus was a man who knew perfectly well who he was, what he was sent to earth to do, and he went about it. He was a man with an unshakably strong sense of self. But he was humble. So if we're going to do what Paul said and follow Jesus' example and be humble, we need a clear picture of some steps we can take to do that. So let me just give you those as we wrap up. Some clear things we can do. First, we can avoid taking the credit, or at least all the credit. And that goes simply beyond just deflecting compliments when they come. One of the things we can do in this is just not draw attention to the good things that we do. Try doing the discipline of secrecy. Try doing good things for people and not pointing them out. Just let the good deed stand on its own merits. That's things like going to the office tomorrow and not saying, hey, fix the copier, you can thank me later. (laughs) Just fix things, do things, and let it go. Try to keep it quiet as long as you can. Praise other people. Find every opportunity you can to give genuine, honest compliments to others. Because pride wants to make us envious and resentful of other people's talents. So humility is the fastest way to break that. So compliment other people. If you work on a team, find ways to spread the praise around to them when a good job has been done. Third, help others succeed. Invest in them. Build into them. Share knowledge. Share resources. You can also admit your mistakes when you're wrong. Now, if you just heard that as a hypothetical possibility, pride may be an issue for you. Nobody likes to admit when they're wrong. But the faster you learn how to do that, the closer you move towards humility. And as a parent, one of the hardest things for me to learn how to do was with my young children, 8, 9, 10 years old, was to learn how to go to them and say, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I was wrong. It moves you a lot further in humility to admit your mistakes to the people who are closest to you. Learning from others helps with humility. No one's an expert in everything. So find people that you can learn from. Ask them to teach you and help you. Go last. Doesn't matter whether it's a line at a restaurant or a grocery store or at a family dinner. Let somebody else go in front of you. Do that on a consistent basis. It increases your humility. And serve somebody. We instinctively, instinctively start to resist serving others because we feel like being served has a relationship to our importance. Find someone that nobody wants to serve and serve them. And don't say anything about it, just do it. And if you do find yourself, even at lunch this afternoon, at a restaurant, in the position of being served, 
Treat that person who serves you with dignity and respect. You know, in the end, it's good for us to remember that Jesus humbled himself. It wasn't something forced upon him. Nobody forced Jesus to leave heaven, to surrender his position, his place there, and come and serve us and save us. He did it of his own free will. He did it voluntarily. It is the ultimate riches to rags story. He lost on purpose, dying so that our sins would be forgiven for all of eternity. And he did it out of his love for you and for me. And because he did, look at what God did to honor him. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did Paul pen these verses? Was it to remind us of what Jesus did for us in becoming our Savior? Yeah. But I don't think that's the primary purpose. I think Paul was calling all of us to follow Jesus' example, to live a radically different kind of life. One that wasn't common in his day and absolutely isn't common in ours. A life where we would voluntarily choose to downscale, to demote ourselves. A life where we might choose on purpose to lose so that somebody else could win. I think the primary purpose of this passage is to get us off the road of self-absorption, self-addiction, and self-promotion. Because that's a dead-end road. Paul is inviting us to travel a different path. To follow Jesus' example. To explore instead the mystery in Christ. That whoever would give up his life, whoever would hold it loosely, humbly, and serve other people, would in the end find a life that is filled with relationships that are richer and fuller and deeper than anything we could ever have imagined before. In our time of communion, we celebrate the central truth of the gospel as Paul laid it out in this passage in Philippians. That Christ died for our sins, was buried and resurrected on the third day, securing for us forgiveness and salvation. When we take communion, we take the piece of bread and the cup of juice as very simple symbols of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and are reminded not only of his sacrifice, but of his forgiveness and our call to do the same in our lives, to lay down our lives for those around us because of God's grace that's been extended to us. We invite anyone who would like this morning to celebrate communion with us as the elements are passed. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful this morning for the reminder in this passage of what Christ has done for us through grace. We're mindful as well that with that grace comes an expectation that our lives will be changed, will be different. 
but we will sacrifice for those around us. And so in these quiet moments, God, help us to receive grace from you and be reminded of how we can extend it to others. Help us to think about tangible steps we can take this week to be different because of grace. Speak to us in these moments, we pray, God, in Christ's name. Amen.